Thank you. You can be seated. Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. While you're doing that, I want to uh, report God's goodness and grace to both Don Rice and Larry Verhaley, who have recently um, gone through some successful surgeries that has helped both of them. Um, Larry is still away this morning, but uh, he's already felt an immediate relief to be able to breathe. Obviously, he's still sore having just experienced the surgery. But we give thanks for both of those successes and are happy for each of those people knowing that God heals in various ways. It is God, of course, according to Daniel, who gives man all knowledge. Every good thing in this world comes from God's hand, the epistle of James states. And so those things are even including medicine even perhaps with those who have taken on that learning, yet by God's common grace have discovered a number of wonderful things to bless humanity with. All things are the blessing of God's good grace, which we're going to look at this morning. Um, one more thing I want to announce to you and let you know about. We will baptize and receive members two weeks from the day. On November the 12th, we're thankful for all of those who have professed faith in Christ. We had the class today and certainly met with all of those people individually. I want to say this, though, if, if you have professed Jesus by faith, um, we want to know about that. Please come and tell us, and we'll connect you to our church family if you know that you have received Jesus by faith and have yet to be baptized. While baptism does not save you, it certainly identifies you to the local church. Um, it is God's command that you be baptized, and so we would encourage you to do that as well. And then, of course, if you have not joined our fellowship and do feel led of the Holy Spirit to join us, um, we uh, encourage you to do that. As I told the class this morning, which I've always told all of the new members' classes that I've ever taught on, everybody that walks into that building we want. Every last soul. But we don't try to pressure anybody. You folks know that. We believe that the Holy Spirit is functioning, that Christ is the head of our church, and as long as we, in our feebleness, attempt to preach God's word, God does a work. He's done it here. We're thankful for what he's done. And yet, for those of you who are listening to this, Jesus alone to save them. Bless us as a people, our church now. Build us in your word, we pray and ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The date was October the 31st. 1517, 506 years ago. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the K 
Castle Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Thus began, for the most part, that's what's been given the starting date to the Protestant Reformation. At the very core of Luther's theses, his argument was the selling of indulgences for the atonement of sins. People would buy money, buy their own money, would give their money to Rome, and the Pope himself would declare their sin forgiven, whether it was adultery, whether any number of sins that you would mention. And this had become prevalent, and of course, Luther in his own personal excursion was brought uh, to faith as a German Catholic monk. The Protestant Reformation, listen to this, swept over all of Europe. England, Scotland, Germany, France, Switzerland, Holland, Ireland, Wales, portions of Poland, that's just the name, about nine or ten, swept across Europe, the Protestant Reformation. Um, some have even shared that the founding of the United States Constitution was given in large part on the basis of John Calvin's Institutes. And John Calvin, of course, was from France. Most people, when they hear the word the Reformation or the Protestant or Reformed faith, think of Martin Luther and John Calvin um, but the five solas that we're going to look at this morning, it wasn't that they sat down specifically and wrote the five solas. The five solas become basically, if we were to think of the Reformation like a house, the five pillars by which reform theology stands itself on. There's really a great deal more about the Protestant Reformation and even about the Reformed faith in these five things, but these five pillars that we'll look at in a few moments here, um, they become the pillars of Reformed theology. The very first time that I heard Reformed theology, the word Reformed theology, when I was in my early 20s, I actually thought it was a church that was connected to Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought, okay, we're reformed. They're being reformed out of... <laughs> I had no clue, obviously, what that meant. And, and you know, you might be sitting there and you, you haven't heard a whole lot about the Great Reformation. What, what we're going to do, though, is I'm going I'm to show you this morning the, the arguments that were made as the church was being freed. I say that as the gospel was being proclaimed in God saving literally millions across the globe. Um, those five things for you note takers, uh, I want to give them to you up front. They are scripture alone, Christ alone, faith 
alone, grace alone, to God be the glory alone. Those are the five things. And as I mentioned, it wasn't as if Martin Luther or John Calvin sat down because there's a lot of reformers that are a part of the great reformation. But those five things become the basis of reform theology to what we hold and regard as being faithfully true because we believe those things and those five things are presented in Scripture. And our faith, right, starts with the Scripture. This begins the text here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We believe in the Scriptures alone. But what does that mean, that we believe in the Scripture alone? Well, the text tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. So there were two things that all faithful churches believe about the Word of God. They believe the Word of God is both inspired and inerrant. Okay? When we're talking about inspiration, we're not talking about, say, like a man falls in love with a woman and he's inspired to write uh, her a letter or a poem. We're talking about an inspiration in Scripture that God took his thoughts and placed them into the thoughts of the original writers. And as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, they wrote the words of God. That is the doctrine of inspiration. And those things, as they were moved in inspiration, they wrote inerrantly in the original autograph. So when we're talking about the Scripture alone, we believe that the Scripture alone is the final authority for our faith and practice because Scripture is both inspired of God and inerrant, meaning it's without error, able to save, of course, our souls because it's a redemptive book. All 66 books making up the one book called the Bible. Now, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church would have believed in inspiration and, and inerrancy. But they didn't stop there. The Roman Catholic Church held to not just Scripture, but secondly, to the traditions that were built at that time or would be built. And then thirdly, and really the most important to this, is that the Pope himself or Rome, the Vatican, had the final authority on faith and practice. So when the Pope spoke in what's called ex cathedra, that term ex cathedra, meaning when he spoke according to faith and practice and doctrine, it was the final word. Okay? Um, and that, obviously, we are in protest against. Now, to kind of picture what was going on five 
100 years ago over in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church at this point had sought out political power. And it was trying to influence all of the varied city-states and in fact did control the city-states around them and uh, they were controlling their government. They were buying city-states and corruption abounded within that, not only the papacy itself, but in the structures that they built. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, they sold indulgences. It's kind of hard for us to think about this, at least it is for me, and I'm sure it is for you, that, okay, so, so let's just pass this on. This would be, you had had, you have trouble with a particular sin, and you come to me and you say, man, I'm struggling with this sin, and I say, well, if you give me X amount of money, that sin can be absolved. That's what selling indulgences was. Rome had built quite a bit of wealth. Matter of fact, to this day, the Roman Catholic Church is its own nation, the Holy See, so that they don't have to reveal just the amount of wealth. The Roman Catholic Church is the most, is the richest entity on the globe by both the land they own and the money that they have collected over the past 500 years. But that wasn't the only thing that was going on at the time. There was a thing called simony from Rome and the Vatican, and that was the selling of offices. That is, they, they built these political structures, and then they made these offices, and they would sell off those opportunity, you know, like a greasy palm deal, right? You pay me, I'll, I'll scratch your back. And they would place people into authority to protect these power structures. Now, that's one thing, and that's perverse, and that's corrupt. They would even do so with people that didn't believe in the basic tenets of Christianity. It's just weird. The priesthood itself was also corrupt in large part to the various sexual perversions. If you were to go in and to read anything about the Grace Reformation, literally nuns and convents and a, a great deal of them were indulging in orgies and all sorts of immoral sexual acts, defying the very word of God that they say they portrayed. Of course, though, we believe that Scripture alone is the final authority. Okay, so, so if I could do this like this, even the pastor in Protestant faith fall under the Word of God. There's no ex-cathedra that comes from the lips of any pastor. He only says things that are correct to which he properly interprets Scripture. Scripture then stands over all of humanity. It is by Scripture and God's gospel that people will give an account for their lives on the final day of judgment. Now before we move on to the second thing, I want to say this. While Scripture is the final authority, it, it's not the sole authority. We read from creeds and confessions, 
And we believe those creeds and confessions in as much as they reflect the scriptures and are helpful. That's why we have an historical reading, okay? When one says they're a biblicist and they don't go by any creeds or confession, that itself is a creed and a confession. The neglect of creeds and confessions has brought an innumerable amount of false doctrines and poor teaching on this nation. So, it doesn't sound more spiritual to say, well, no, 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 I, it, you know, it's, it's Christ alone and it's the Bible alone. That sounds real sweet. That sounds like a, you know, something we want to bite ourselves into and, and chew on. And it is true in as much as we're faithful to it, but it's not as if those creeds and confessions don't reflect teachings that are presented in Scripture because everyone is explaining the Bible in whatever church you're going to. We believe in the five solas that Scripture alone is our final authority. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We'll look at the second of the solas. And that is Christ alone. John chapter 14. Christ alone. Look with me at verse 6. Jesus is meeting with his disciples. Um, he's, he's giving them in John 13, 14, 15, a series of things that are going to take place when he leaves this life. You know, he, is, he keeps telling them that he has to go to Jerusalem and that he must be crucified and then he'll rise from the dead. And he, they're hearing it, but they're not giving it. And it's getting closer to the moment, just days away. And when they, when they hear this, at this moment in John chapter 14, these guys are perplexed. Like, why does he keep saying he's going to go away? That is, Jesus keeps saying this. Look at these words in verse 6. Jesus said to him, this is Thomas. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We believe that the Bible teaches in Christ alone. It is Christ alone the way to eternal life. Now, what would have been going on 500 years ago? Well, the the Roman Catholic Church had created this elaborate system of works. It would begin in infant baptism where they would state and do state that that child's sin is washed away. It progresses itself through various um, functions and, and sacrament systems to extreme unction, which is a sacrament at the point of death. That's why you'll see at car accidents or hospitals, they'll call for a priest. And then it will finally lead, and maybe some of you have seen this on TV when they do a new pope. 
you know, when they're, when they're doing a new pope or the smoke comes out of, of the top and they've selected a new pope, at the same time, a group of people in what they call the chapel of the mercy will be praying over the previous pope that he'll gain entrance into heaven. Because in the Catholic Church, there is this elaborate system that our lavers, like a big bowl, put together that ultimately come out when mixed together, come out salvation. The argument was not on the person of Christ, right? They agree, as we do, that Jesus is um, truly God and truly man. But this is why this argument is so important. To add anything to Jesus is to attack the work of the cross. It's to attack what Christ has done. So in a comparative, you have Catholicism in these additive systems which mix together will eventually bring eternal life or you have Christ alone in his redemptive work that saves. Of course, we believe that the scripture teaches that Jesus lived the sinless life that I'm supposed to live, but, but can't or don't. That Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sin, and then Jesus rose from the dead. In his death, of course, it proves his humanity. As Jesus rose from the dead, it proves his deity, so that when one places their faith in Jesus alone to save them, What's given to them is the life and the accomplishment and the work that Jesus did. Those are polar opposites. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll look at the third sola. There is scripture alone. Of course, we believe that eternal life comes only through Jesus by Christ alone. Look at Romans chapter 5. We'll look at the third of the solas called faith alone. Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So think of justification, which is a legal term, this way. Therefore, since we have been made acceptable by our faith, or therefore, since we have been made righteous by our faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, where in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, without Christ, we are in warfare to God. But once a person cries out for the forgiveness of their sin and trust in Christ alone, that position of enmity or warfare turns to one of peace. 
And it's very important to understand that this is a legal term. What this is basically saying is in the, if, if, if the courtroom or the throne room of God was a courtroom, Christ stands as the advocate of the sinner who has placed their faith in Jesus. So while I'm guilty of my sin, I don't have to pay for my sin. Christ has paid for my sin for me. That's what faith alone is. And so faith alone, please hear this, was what was called, quote, unquote, the material cause of the Reformation. That was the essence of why the Reformation took place. Because everybody was getting struck with, how can someone's sins be forgiven when they're paying a guy? It just doesn't make any logical sense. And of course, people begin to read the Bible. And the printing press came into view and the word of God spread like wildfire. And, and God saved by scripture alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone. I mean, only eternity will finally reveal. Martin Luther said this of faith alone. Faith alone is the article by which the church stands or falls. One can only be qualified as a church that preach the gospel that the human responsibility to it is that they must trust in Christ alone to save them. If they are teaching anything else from that, they are not God's church. So they're not God's church because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches not just by faith alone. Sinners are made just through, as I mentioned, this, say, call it a big bowl, this laver of regeneration that begins in infant baptism, which removes sins. But the removal of sins also comes with what they coined infused righteousness, which makes a person sanctified and renewed in the inward man that is faithfully lived out outwardly, and they add love, they add hope, and that individual must cooperate with the infused grace so that they will finally be sanctified and renewed to eternal life. That's the difference in Protestantism and Catholicism. In Catholicism, there is this inherent righteousness. Now, please listen to this for just a second. In Catholicism, and this is fair. I mean, you could take this in. Some of you that were inundated with Catholic theology, you know, I wanted to obviously present this the way they would present it. In Catholicism, all who die in grace, there's some level of Christianity to them, go to purgatory. Not those that have rejected Jesus, but all of those who have accepted Jesus, they go to purgatory. But they are not yet perfect. And so they spend X amount of time paying off their sin of absolution so that they can reach the perfection necessary 
that Matthew 5.48, Jesus required, unless a man is perfect, he, he won't enter his kingdom. But think about this system. Salvation, obviously, in their minds is a progression. It goes from birth to death. But it is the church that controls all the stages. God's standard, as I mentioned earlier, uh, or just a few seconds ago, Matthew 5.48, is perfection. The Bible teaches that there has only been one perfect in thought, word, and deed. That was Jesus. We are saved by Jesus' active righteousness to obey the law, his active obedience. We are also saved by his passive obedience that he secondly suffered for sin on the cross. But his sinless life and his death were not alone. They were proved by Jesus conquered sin by resurrection. And through his resurrection, those who trust in Jesus have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. So let's just picture this, right? So if Jesus were on that cross, of course he's not. He's been raised from the dead. But when Jesus was on the cross, he was suffering for your sin who believe on him now. Right? Jesus was taking our sin. Once he died, he didn't go into a coma. He, 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 he died a literal death. He then rose from the dead the third day so that when we trust by faith in Jesus alone, Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to us. This is a legal term. And why is that so important that Paul would use a legal term? Jesus will never take back your salvation. It rests and is secure alone in Christ. That's why we read from the historical confession this morning. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, which he pardons all their sins, da -da -da -da, by the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ, God imputes his righteousness to you. You're never going to stand before God for your sin. Now, we got a couple more things to go here, but let me tell you what Reformed theology, when it's properly embraced, without fail, it produces this. True humility and a life of gratitude. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's a great time, basically because Val makes the best cornbread dressing you'll ever put your lips on. Gratitude for the Christian is more than a season. It's life. 
Reformed theology produces humility. It produces gratitude. Why? Because I don't deserve the salvation God has given me. I'll be the first to confess that. It humbles the heart. It humbles the life. There's no place for self-righteousness. I did nothing to accomplish this. And yes, it moves us to have a life of gratitude because we want everybody else around us to know Jesus. We're saved by faith alone. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We are saved by grace alone. Scripture alone. Christ alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen to these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone. Now here's what, here's what took place. In the 5th century, right, there was this scuffle between a guy named Pelagius and between a guy named Augustine. Okay, so without trying to bore you with all the details, what was the argument is what exactly is grace? What is the Bible speaking of when it's referring to grace? Because here's what Pelagius taught. Pelagius taught that God's commands were given and that man in his natural estate could do them. He could do them apart from grace. And please listen to this, that Adam's sin only affected Adam. So like when you were born, you didn't sin until you sinned or you acted on it because you were born like Adam was born and created by God without sin. This is what Pelagius taught. He said this of all humans that would be born like Adam prior to the fall. And so ultimately, whether they had eternal life was predicated upon whether they obeyed or disobeyed God. Your good works ultimately, coupled together with your faith, would merit salvation. Augustine's like this, whoa, whoa, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we are born in sin. You guys know that, Psalm 51.5, Psalm 58.3. We sin because by nature we sin. All right? We are already corrupted in our sin. All are born in sin because that's what the Scripture says. It means we are spiritually dead, unable to do good 
in the eyes of God, and the facts are we would never choose God. And every subsequent council that met together agreed Pelagius is a heretic. All right? Now, okay, well, those are the sums of theological terms. Let me try to give you an illustration. Here's Pelagius. There's this dude drowning, right? You're out in the ocean and you're in a boat. To Pelagius, that fall, fallen center was a guy who's, you know, he's floating, he's alive. He's able to keep himself alive. He's drowning. God tosses him a life raft, and if he chooses the life raft, he'll live. If he doesn't choose the life raft, he won't live. And God's just waiting to see what he does. It's a mentality of you got to pull your life up by the bootstraps. Like God is waiting to see what man will do for him. Augustine is like this. It's far worse. You're in the boat, but we're all dead in the bottom of the ocean. Cold, lifeless, dead. And God reaches his powerful arm through the person of Christ and the work of Christ and pulls us up and resuscitates us to spiritual life by breathing on us. That's Augustine. We cannot cooperate because we're blind. How are you going to see when you're blind? We cannot cooperate because we're, we're dead. That's why in Ephesians earlier in this text, he talks, we've been made alive. Grace is all of grace. When grace is mixed with any one thing, we're no longer talking about grace. We're talking about what we deserve. Salvation is grace alone. It's all of grace. It's all of God's merited, uh, unmerited favor heaped upon us. God bestows us. In the Greek word, the word grace, it is a superior stooping down to someone who is inferior when the one inferior can offer the superior nothing. That's grace. That's God's unmerited favor, His undeserved benefit. God grants faith to people when they hear the words of the gospel and the Spirit, boom, awakens their hearts to their sin, God's holiness, and that Christ alone can save them. That, my friends, is salvation by grace alone. Number five, as we close, the Reformed theology said that all things are to God be the glory alone. God gets the glory in everything. From beginning to end, Adam's not the hero. Noah's not the hero. Abraham's not the hero. Moses isn't the hero. David is not the hero. The Apostle Paul is not the hero. Are there good examples there? Absolutely. Do we, do we neglect those? Of course we don't. But they're not the hero. The hero 2,000 years ago suffered on a cross. The just for the 
unjust. He's the hero. To God be the glory alone from beginning to end. This is why theology must be God-centered. Let me just encourage you with this. If you don't attend the Bible class, and this is not to heap guilt, so everybody chill out. But I'll promise you this. If you go to our Bible classes for four years, because we intentionally, the elder board, put them together, you will graduate with a theological degree. And it won't cost you anything. You can afford to do that. All you got to do is get up. We change the classes every 13 weeks. I'm just telling you they would benefit you. Right? That class this morning, we start here. It's the corporate worship. We do a lot of things, and those things are profitable and good. We got Bible studies that go on all across from time to time. They go through different segments. I'm just saying that to encourage you. And you're never too old to keep learning. As a matter of fact, if you think you know it all, you need to get to that class like 30 minutes early next week. You know, I didn't, I, as you know, I, was, I didn't go to Bible college to be a pastor. I was trying to figure out. I knew I was a Christian. I wanted to understand truth. That's really the motive why I went to Bible college. When I came out of it, boy, I realized, man, I don't know nothing. <laughs> and I graduated. They had a lot of questions. But it drove me to the scripture. I can't, under, I don't, I can't explain this other than when my parents bought me a Bible right at 13 when I professed faith. My, it was the first leather Bible that I had. Something Sunday to Sunday drove me. I know what it was now. It was the spirit. Pay attention. It was something outside of me telling me to pay attention. So in all of this discussion this morning about Scripture alone, about Christ alone, about faith alone, about grace alone, to, the God, uh, to God be the glory of alone, it is either resonating with you in belief or you are setting there in rejection. And if you are setting there in rejection in your inward man, cry out to God to show you the light. To God be the glory alone, because glory is one of God's attributes. It benefits the redeemed and the unredeemed. Have you ever looked at creation? It's unreal. Beautiful fall colors. I dig fall. I hate winter, but I, but I dig fall. My wife and I were blessed to go to Hawaii like 20 plus years ago. I'll never forget because we were dining with someone and this woman was an atheist or agnostic at least and we were right at sunset and she's pontificating to me about how she doesn't believe and I said, hey, turn around because I was viewing the sunset. She says, why? I said, just turn around, take a look. She turned around and said, wow, that's beautiful. I said, you think that's an accident? It's the glory of God. 
that is revealed in creation. But listen to me. Please listen. Recognizing the glory of God in creation isn't enough to save you. It's just to identify you that there is something greater. The five solas are important because they're biblical. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. Oh God, to your glory alone. What do they do? Those five pillars guard the gospel the good news of Jesus. And here's the center of the good news of Jesus. God saves sinners. That's why we can sit here in rest knowing if I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Man, don't grip. Yield to Jesus by faith. The only thing that remains is God saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that enables us to see the the truth of the gospel. That your son Jesus is truly God and that he's truly man. And that Jesus lived the perfect life for some 33 years on the earth in thought, word, and deed. That Jesus then suffered and died on the cross, dear God, for my sin, because I have trusted in Him. Move, first and foremost, into the hearts of those who do not know you, God, would you please save those in this room that do not know you. Awaken their their blind eyes to see. Reach down to the bottom of the ocean and pull their dead, lifeless life up and breathe on them life so that they would express faith in Christ alone to save them. Then all for the rest of us, dear God, who are a part of your church, encourage us with these truths of Reformed theology because they're true and they tell us who you are and what you've done in this beautiful world that you've created that you'll one day in the sending of your son will make everything new we thank you in the name of jesus and by the power of the holy spirit amen church you may rise and go receive the elements